Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode, we're meeting some of the researchers who are working to make sure that everyone gets the benefit of genetic research, from underserved communities to entire continents. Charles Rotimi is the director of the Centre for Genomics and Global Health within the NIH National Human Genome Research Institute at Bethesda in Maryland in the US, and he's a distinguished NIH investigator. He's also the founder of the African Society of Human Genetics and the driving force behind a major genomics project called Human Heredity and Health in Africa, or H3Africa, which he helped to establish 10 years ago and is now wrapping up. He's certainly come a long way from his birthplace in Benin City in Nigeria, where he grew up as a curious child with a long-standing interest in science. Charles studied biochemistry at the university in his hometown, but quickly realised that if he wanted to pursue his scientific training, he'd have to go further afield. He ended up in the US getting a PhD in epidemiology, including what was at the time the nascent field of genomics. From there, he ended up getting interested in a project called HapMap, a spin-off from the Human Genome Project, which allowed researchers to start teasing out the associations between genes and health. My development from there in terms of genomics really started with my first participation in the HapMap, International HapMap Project, where I engaged the African community, three African communities specifically, for the International HapMap Project. That is the Yoruba community in Nigeria and the Maasai community in Kenya and also the Luya community in Kenya. And um, I, I think since then, I sort of, you can say the, I was bitten by the genomic bug and um, it's been a wonderful journey since then, yeah. So tell me about the founding of the H3 Africa. What made you realise that there was a project of this kind of scale and scope that needed to happen to understand the, the diversity of genomes in Africa? We sort of, we say Africa, it's not a country, it's a continent. It's incredibly diverse. What was the, the drive and, and the impetus that started that project? I think, again, I'll, I'll take us back a little bit to the HAP map. Uh, during the HapMap you know, project, for me, I was extremely conscious of the fact that I was one or two or maximum three persons of African ancestry who were present in those discussions. Uh, so to me, that stuck with me, and I, I did not want that to continue. I wanted to create opportunity for African ancestry individuals to be a player in the genomic world. And I also quite concerned that the genomic revolution may not benefit Africa if African scientists and the community members do not adequately participate in uh, genomics. So that led us to the formation of the African Society of Human Genetics, which actually created for the first time a forum for geneticists across Africa and also non-geneticists but interested in doing research in Africa to come together and create a forum for further discussion. So under the African Society of Human Genetics, uh, we started thinking about what can we do to make sure that the genomic revolution did not fly over Africa, basically. And so we started thinking about doing an African genome project, which subsequently developed into what we call H3Africa today. So tell me a bit more about some of the 
the work that was being done under H3 Africa and some of the, the insights that came out of it, what did you actually discover along the way? So we all know that we all, as human beings, if we trace our roots far back enough, we will end up in Africa. So again, that contributed to the scope, the wide scope of human genetic variation across Africa. So recently, as a result of sequencing over 18 ethno-linguistic groups across Africa, uh, especially among those populations that have not been a part of HapMap and also uh, Thousand Genome Projects, we were able to make discoveries of 3 million new variants that is currently not in public databases. So again, just highlighting the critical importance of the systematic sampling of African genomes to fully understand human genetic variation. One of the things that enable us to make this kind of discovery is that when humans migrated out of Africa by 100,000 years ago, that small group of humans that migrated only took a subset of the variation that existed on the African continent. So they are part of our human genetic inheritance that can only be studied in African populations, again, just because of that evolutionary history. So we also make a discovery in terms of the part of our genome that has been under selection as a result of our ability to adapt to different environments. And we make discoveries about uh, selective uh, protective mechanisms in our genome against things like uh, viral infection, nematodes, you know, infections, and even up to immune, you know, response and uh, pigmentation. Uh, so those were all very, very novel insights uh, that H3 Africa was indeed, uh, you know, delivering uh, on in this initial. The medical aspects uh, is going to come very soon because we have now genotyped close to 60,000 individuals, and the analysis of that data set is ongoing for various diseases that come like kidney disease, sickle cell, you know, stroke, uh, which is a major problem. So though all of those are being analyzed, and um, we do you know, hope that uh, we'll make some novel discoveries that will really make us to understand how genetics interact with the environment to increase disease risk or resistance, yeah. Were there any things that were particularly surprising to you along this journey? Yes, for me, one of the main surprises, which was a very pleasant surprise, was the fact how ready African scientists were to take responsibility for this project. So I've suspected, you know, for some time, but it made it very clear that the issue it's really not lack of training or lack of, you know, the ability to do this kind of work. It was really an issue of opportunity. And uh, so the way African investigators rallied around this project and made it their own was absolutely a wonderful surprise for me and um, a very good one because it really led to the success that he enjoys today. So with all the information that's coming out, the insights that you're getting, the tools that you're being able to build to understand the genomes of of all sorts of different African people, how do we turn all these insights into benefits, into better health? Because, you know, Africa is a, a very broad group of very different countries, including some of the very poorest communities on earth. And, and there are all sorts of health pressures there. You know, you have um, food scarcity, you have all sorts of diseases, you have war and conflict. 
and here in the in you know in the UK we're talking about genomics in the NHS and all these sort of very expensive fancy tests and things like that you know how do we how do we really make genomics and all this research really useful um, for the the public health benefit of people living in Africa uh, I look at it as making incremental progress uh, I'll give you an example of where genomics has indeed helped quite in a very practical sense and that is if you remember the 2014 Ebola epidemic, there was a need to be able to sequence the pathogen in a timely manner. Part of the success story about the ability of African scientists to be able to do that work was the fact that Asia Africa has indeed enabled laboratories to be set up that has genome sequencing capabilities. In again, with some additional funding from the World Bank. So the scientists in Nigeria and other parts of Africa were able to do sequencing of the Ebola virus and able to track it as it was mutating and also as it was spreading across different... So that was a very practical utilization of genomics as a surveillance tool in a public health setting. Another major area is kidney, kidney disease. One of the devastating consequences of kidney disease in African ancestry populations is the APOL1 variant uh, that is highly protective against African sleeping sickness, trypanosomiasis, but it is devastating to the kidney. But evolutionarily, you can see how that kind of variant rose to high frequency because you would die first from African sleeping sickness before you die of kidney disease. Because kidney disease is a disease of old people or older people. Therefore, it rose to high frequency and now it's really putting people at increased risk of kidney failure since the African sleepless disease has been sort of taken care of quite significantly. So understanding that biology would help us to make preventive strategies and also perhaps develop some kind of therapeutics that will save a lot of Africans from getting uh, kidney failure because the possibility of putting people on dialysis is, is not a workable option because of just the cost. So you set up H3Africa 10 years ago. We're now in 2021. Where would you like to see the field of African genomics in 2031? Just take a leap 10 years into the future. What's what's it like? What's your vision? I, I would just I would like to see it without boundaries. I just want to see it blow up and grow in any direction that is beneficial across Africa. I want it to be a part of the economic development. I want it to be a part of the scientific uh, development and infrastructure. I also would like Africa to be a part of the process of creating a global good, not just recipient of global good. You know, there is a lot about African genome that if we understand it well, it will benefit everybody, not just Africans, because again, that's the root of human evolutionary history. You know, so I would say that in 2031 or something like that, I will be very, very happy that African scientists are indeed making wonderful strides that is benefiting African people, but perhaps just as important is benefiting the global community because we are sharing insights 
into the genome where the, our whole genome came from. Human beings have lived the longest on the African continent. And if we study that very well, we know that that environment has shaped the genome that we see all over the world. How do we study that in a way that will make novel discoveries? Charles Rotimi from the Centre for Genomics and Global Health within the NIH National Human Genome Research Institute. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzipped.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show? While most people in the world don't have any scientific knowledge of genetics, although I'm doing my best here, folks, most of us do have practical experience of the field in the form of our family. Our family histories can reveal incredibly valuable information about our health and risk of different diseases, but only if we know who and what to ask. Dr Laura Cayley is a senior investigator at the National Human Genome Research Institute with a special interest in helping people unlock the information hidden in their family health histories, particularly focusing on underserved and less privileged communities. I wanted to know why this information is so valuable. You know, we can think of family health history as a clinical tool. So it's a genomic tool that's used in a clinical setting to do genetic risk assessment. So those patients that have a strong family history, so a lot of family members affected by a condition are at increased risk of disease, and that information can be used for referral to genetic services, for example. We see that in particular in the context of families with inherited cancer syndromes. It can also be used to personalize healthcare. For example, individuals with a strong family history will be referred in for screenings, often more frequently and at an earlier age. And it can also impact lifestyle recommendations that clinicians might give to patients with a strong family history. But none of that can happen if patients come into the clinical setting without information. So if they don't know their family health history, then these personalized healthcare services can't occur. And what we found from our work is that in particular, those in younger generations do not know a fair amount of their family health history. So we've done a couple of studies looking at family health history knowledge across age groups and families. And one of the things that we found is that our study participants who were in the younger age group did not know almost 30% of their family health history particularly those in minority groups. So our Mexican heritage family members who were ages 18 to 30 did not know about 30% of their family health history. Participants who identified as Black in these age groups from 18 to 30 did not know about 30% of their family health history. In contrast to our non-Hispanic white participants 
in those same age groups who did not know about 15% of their family health history. So there was definitely a disparity in family history knowledge. And when we looked at older generations, there was no disparity in family health history knowledge. So our older uh, family members, regardless of their uh, racial identity, did not know about 15% of their family health history. So what this suggested to us is that if we could get families to talk about their family health history and to share information about their family health history, we might be able to reduce this knowledge disparity within these minority populations. So tell me a bit about the project that you're working on now. Who are the people that you're working with, the families? Where are they and uh, and what, what are you doing? Yeah, so what we're doing is we developed in, I want to say in 2015, we developed a workbook. So it's a handheld workbook. We're talking low tech here. Our, Our goal was really to increase genomic literacy by helping individuals understand how their family health history fit into their increased risk of disease. So the workbook focuses on five disease contexts. We have breast cancer, colorectal cancer, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and we just added prostate cancer. And for each of these disease contexts, we provide a little bit of information with regards to what those conditions are, um, what are the risk factors for those conditions, what they can do in terms of early detection and screening behaviors. And then we have a risk algorithm. And so those who receive the workbook can look at their family health history and they can fill in the algorithm to evaluate whether or not they are at increased risk of disease. Importantly, we realize that for these conditions, they're complex, right? So it's not just about genetics, it's also about lifestyle and behavior. And so it's an opportunity to understand how those factors work together and how they're represented within their own personal pedigrees. And then we also provide worksheets for other family members. So our goal here is really to help increase literacy, empower individuals to use the tool in both clinical encounters as well as encounters with their family. And that's what we're finding in terms of the research. So when we developed the workbook in 2015, the sample that we engaged at that time uh, was largely, I would say, well-educated upper middle class in terms of of their resources and resource availability. And we did not have a large representation in terms of diversity within the sample. So our participants were primarily um, white. And we were interested, given some of the results we had found in our previous project, whether or not the tool would have meaning and salience to other populations. And so we actively engaged under-resourced Black communities in the Washington, D.C. and Baltimore area to evaluate uh, the workbook and receptivity to the workbook and identify whether we had to tailor aspects of the workbook specifically to the communities that we were working in. So how did it go down when you brought this thing to the community? What did people say? How did people respond? 
Yeah, I mean, we were really pleased. Um, we engaged uh, about 51 individuals from these communities, conducted a detailed family health history, and mailed the workbook along with their personalized pedigree um, to them, and then reached out about four weeks later to see what they did with the information. Did they understand the information and asked for feedback, right? So how can we modify the workbook so that it's useful for you and your family? And 98%, so 50 out of the 51, said they used the workbook, they were able to assess their risk, and about three quarters of the participants shared the feedback with others, including healthcare providers, but mostly family members. They showed the workbook, so actually shared the workbook to family members who, in turn, of those who received the workbook to look at it themselves, about half of them were able to use the algorithm as well to assess their risk. So we felt like this was a highly successful endeavor in terms of the accessibility and usability of the workbook, and it appeared to activate communication processes within the family. Laura's work with the community in Baltimore helping them to uncover their health inheritance has made her reflect on her own role in her family's history too. Our younger generations do not know a fair amount of information about their family health history. So, you know, often the keepers of that information are the older generation. And, you know, I was actually thinking about this last week where um, my uncle passed away last week and he's my father's brother. And it was this realization suddenly that I am now, me and my siblings and my cousins are now the oldest generation that's living in my father's family. And there's so much that I'm like, oh my gosh, now I am I am a, I'm playing point <laughs> in my family. So if my nieces and and nephews and you know my cousins children need information in terms of their health history they're relying on us and I'm not sure we know everything, right? So this family share tool is an opportunity for families to have these conversations with older generations and archive and curate that information so it's there for younger generations because at some point the younger generation is going to be the oldest generation, right? Time only goes one way. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um. That's Laura Cayley from the National Human Genome Research Institute. Dr. Sarah Hull is a bioethicist who's worked at the National Institutes of Health for more than 20 years, helping researchers make sure their work is done ethically and doesn't cause harm to the people involved. She has a particular interest in working with indigenous and tribal populations in the US, people with whom the scientific community doesn't have the greatest track record. This interest was first sparked when she got involved in a project aiming to find out whether people were comfortable for researchers to take biological samples from them and use them responsibly in the future to answer other scientific questions. In these studies that we conducted and that many others conducted, we learned that a majority of the public is comfortable with allowing researchers to have fairly broad discretion about future uses. But a substantial minority, 15, 20%, sometimes higher, 
would say, no, I'm, I have real concerns about that. I would want to know what's being done. I would want to know who's doing it. And I'd want an opportunity to weigh in. And for a while, I was very focused on the, the majority perspective and how that ought to shape policy. But increasingly, I became concerned about who we were leaving out of research when we had those policies that allowed for broad sharing and for broad future use. And that's actually where I took a, a dramatic pivot and started really paying attention to the concerns expressed by populations. It wasn't a coincidence that many of those individuals were members of communities that have historically been excluded from research who weren't realizing the benefits of the research. And that made me rethink some of our standard policies and think about the potential negative impacts they might have on research with some of the populations who are experiencing the greatest health disparities, the greatest burden of disease. So when you started to look at these populations who were being excluded or, or perhaps self-excluding from this kind of research, how did you start to understand what was going on? How did you start to engage with them and figure out what's what's going on inside there? I think probably coming into this work, I had some misconceptions about tribal populations not being interested in genetics research. I think I had heard that some tribes had established moratoria on participating in genetics research. And I, um, through attendance at meetings and really starting to listen, I realized there was actually great interest by some tribal researchers, by some members of the community in the power of genetics and how it might be beneficial to their communities. They were just worried about doing the research in a responsible, tribally engaged manner that would actually translate into realizing those benefits without some of the unethical approaches to research that many of the tribes have been harmed by. Can you give me some examples of where things have perhaps gone wrong in the past that would make um, these tribes and, and these populations very suspicious of scientists turning up wanting to do stuff with them? Yeah, there is a long history and many examples of research that uh, you may have heard referred to as helicopter research. The idea is that researchers come in with their research questions, kind of fly into communities, extract data and samples, and, and bring those away, do their research, publish on it, and never return to the community for those benefits to be realized. And because they haven't really engaged with the tribes ahead of time, because they're coming in with a pre-existing set of ideas about what ought to be studied, the research isn't well tailored to be translated into tangible benefits for the community. And in fact, many times has caused stigma and harm to those tribes based on the way that it's reported out in the literature and in the press. Perhaps the best known example that's been written about quite a bit in the literature, I, I refer to as the Arizona State University case. You'll also hear it referred to as the Havasupai case. It concerns a tribe in Arizona whose biospecimens were collected for use in type two diabetes research, but that were retained and used for secondary research on a number of topics that were quite stigmatizing and harmful to the interests of the tribe. And this resulted in a lawsuit and a settlement where ultimately the tribe was able to receive the specimens that had been collected back from the researchers, symbolizing the end of the research and the ability to 
to handle the specimens respectfully in accordance with the views of the tribe. So this is the Genetics Unzipped podcast, and I, you know, I'm fascinated by genetics, and we're all fascinated by genetics, and I think we can kind of fall into the trap of going, oh, look, there's some interesting, diverse populations. Let's get some DNA and let's do some genetics. And, oh, it's going to be really exciting. It's going to tell us loads of cool things. How's that kind of, <laughs> for want of a better way of putting it, you know, kind of, how's that working out? Because that there's an exciting urge to, you know, study and, and engage populations in this kind of genetics research. But how, how can that be done in this sort of basically culturally right way that doesn't lead to harm? Yeah, and that's another great question. So almost almost exactly three years ago today, I was part of a group from the National Institutes of Health that was invited by Alaska Native tribal health organizations to participate in a workshop on genomics research. And I mean, I, I work for the National Human Genome Research Institute, and they invited us to come and learn about their health systems, their delivery of care, their research programs, and to really engage with the community about research priorities. And it was really just a starting point. It may seem like that was so long ago, that was three years ago, and it might seem like old news, but it it fits into this point that I want to emphasize again and again, which is that the way to do this best, it requires patience. It requires being able to establish relationships and to listen. So in this case, we listened to what tribal leaders and representatives were telling us about health priorities in the community, some of which might be amenable to including a genetic component, others of which would not really benefit from the inclusion of genetic science. And so part of the barriers to being able to incorporate genetics is taking the time to help to educate the community about what it really means and how those benefits can be realized, how it might be beneficial to learn about how diseases are inherited within families and to learn about how drug metabolism might vary depending on the genetic makeup of an individual and how we might be able to pick the right drugs or the right doses based on knowing something more about the genetics of a population. So when you talk to these populations, uh, they're, they're not a sort of homogenous mass, but you sort of have these individual conversations, you find out what people are interested in knowing, what they're interested in knowing about their health, what they, they don't want to know about. Are there specific things that do come up that people do want to know about, particularly around their health, or, or also as well, perhaps around their ancestry, which is something that we can also understand from genetics. In my conversations with tribal populations, what I hear consistently simply is that the community wants to hear what the research uncovered and how it might be relevant to, and, and hopefully ideally beneficial to the community. But even just learning about the science and understanding that it sometimes takes time to translate results. I've never heard from any individual or tribal group that there is an interest in receiving results related to genetic ancestry. In fact, if anything, I've heard the opposite, that there's concern that participating in research might lead to genetic information that gets conflated with information about tribal identity or membership. And there are sometimes questions about how we will keep this information separate 
but there has been no interest in the receipt of those kinds of results in the context of tribal research that I've heard. Why is it important that we do get a diversity of populations, of ethnically diverse, of, of tribal groups involved in genetic research in this kind of genetic and health research? Well, in general, we want those groups to realize the benefits of our investment in research. And this gives us a pathway to close the health disparities gap. And when we're talking about tribal communities, I mean, we do see health disparities in other racial and ethnic minorities, but tribal populations in the United States are distinct in part because tribal membership is, is not, it's not really a racial or an ethnic group. It's a political status. Tribes have a special relationship with the federal government. And we're obligated to uphold commitments that I can say pretty confidently have not been honored in the past. We're supposed to deliver health care and access to other benefits in exchange for the land that we acquired through colonization. And there have been persistent health disparities in indigenous populations since colonization. And many of these can be attributed to the social conditions that were created by colonization. And so to break out of these patterns, we really need to look at the mirror and figure out what it is that we need to be doing differently as a matter of uh, justice. That's Sarah Hull. Thanks to my other guests, Laura Cayley and Charles Rotimi, and also thanks to Alyssa Jones at the NIH National Human Genome Research Institute for making it all happen. That's all for now. We'll be back next time with a special excerpt from my new book, Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution and the Science of Life, which is coming out in paperback in the UK on the 6th of August. If you didn't buy the hardback already, now is your chance. Please do pre-order it from your favourite retailer and help give me a little bump up the charts so my mum will be proud. You can find the link on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com or by going to rebelcellbook.com and clicking on the Where to Buy tab. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip and please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference and it helps more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Katani. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard and our logo is designed by James Mayle. Audio production is by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.